Hello and welcome to Grace Church Vienna. This Sunday, Hans-Georg Koprich will continue our series through the book of Acts in chapter 20. During his sermon, Sailing, Speaking and Sleeping at Church, we will learn of an exhortation and what worship was like in the early church. And we will also see a snapshot of a sleepy saint and learn how strengthening and encouraging one another needs availability and communication. So here is Hans-Georg. these uh, devices uh, and use them so that others uh, can listen. I mean, I can do without a mic, uh, as you know. Uh, uh, Having been uh, 10 years in Papua New Guinea, uh, there was no mic at all. Uh, And uh, so I need to apologize quite often because I'm a little bit more expressive to do it in, uh, to say it in a British way, more expressive. Sailing, speaking, and sleeping at church. What a strange title of a, of a sermon. Didn't you think uh, when you received the news uh, yesterday from Philip, uh, sailing, speaking, and sleeping at church? Church. That's uh, strange, isn't it? Uh, Well, the the church has been always on the move in Acts, and the people spoke a lot, and and, uh, especially Paul, he was speaking on and on and on, and especially in Acts uh, 20, um, you know, he was speaking as if it would be the last time of him speaking. And then, of course, we read um, the story of this uh, poor guy who dropped down and uh, somehow got saved again, sleeping at church. Wow, that's something special, isn't it, you know? And and sleeping at church. I think it's kind of a very uh, deep sleeping and uh, uh, quite often you know uh, I wonder whether people start snoring after all Um, well so far the the title of um, this uh, sermon this morning now looking into the details let's have a look uh, how uh, Paul experienced everything and in 1 Corinthians 15:34 the apostle Paul makes a mysterious and difficult to understand yet expressively direct and decisive reference to his time in Ephesus I fought, he writes in 1 Corinthians 15:32 I fought fought with wild Beasts at Ephesus. As a Roman citizen, Paul could not have been literally thrown to the beasts in the Colosseum. So I'm sure that we're safe in assuming that this is a kind of um, symbolic reference. 
What a suitable description for the mad riot he and his companions had just endured. Angry Demetrius and his mob were ready to tear them all apart in a, a bloody rage. Fortunately, though, God, and I think we had a good laugh last time when I was there, you know, some, it just uh, happened that everything went differently, completely differently, and we need to laugh about it, how God intervened. He made it different. Fortunately, God used a simple town clerk to quiet them down and restore reason. So what had become a noisy and loud riot soon broke up and scattered into a useless, indeed useless activity. The only thing the people could do really, they just went home. That's all there was. Nothing special. And I, you know, when I got ready for this sermon, I really had a good laugh again. You know, this is what God can do still today. With peace reestablished and the growing church safe, Paul now decides that the time is right to move on. We see the Apostle Paul leaving Ephesus and then ministering in Macedonia. Paul has laced up his sandals and his backpack, to use some new words, in his um, by the door, the backpack is there already, but before he sets off, he has one last task to tie up. And Acts 21, uh, verse 1 says, And after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent forth the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he departed to go to Macedonia. After three years of ministry in Ephesus, a sizable number of disciples have been raised up. Evangelism is not what is crucial now, but there is one important thing that Paul needs to do. It's this word. I don't know whether you've ever thought about this very special word. Um, that uh, is used in my translation of the Bible, exhortation, exhortation. Let us take a, a closer look today at what may be quite, what I think, um, kind of um, an unfamiliar term, exhortation. We do not often use the word exhortation, we may not be exactly sure what it means. The Greek word for exhort is parakaleo, a word that literally means to call alongside, uh, to help in this 
sense, in the same sense, the Holy Spirit is the parakletos, um, um, a helper, um, the one who comforts us. And John 14, 26 says, but the advocate, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Well, here is a very simple definition. It's the exhortation is the ability to apply revealed truth to life. That's exhortation all about to apply revealed truth to life. Counselors, for instance, who can skillfully extract principles from scriptures and show people how to employ them in their lives, they, they have this very spiritual gift to exhort. An exhortation can be a warning. It can be a comforting statement or an encouraging comment. And I hope after our service, you will apply this in your talks, not only today after service, but over the week in your lifetime to exhort the ability to apply revealed truth to life, to the practical nitty-gritty of daily life. An exhortation, uh, well, the Proverbs uh, 15 tells us, uh, 15.7, it says, A man has joy in an at answer, and how delightful is a timely Word And Proverbs 25, 11 says, Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. That's exhortation all about. Exhortation was a gift Paul had. And he paused to employ it before leaving the Ephesians and going on to Macedonia. Uh, there was a departure with his counsel given and his goodbye said he set off to Macedonia following the coastal uh, north to Troas and then across the Macedonian shores by ship. Once there, he visits the city from the second missionary journey, we've already mentioned several times, retracing his steps through Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, nurturing and Again, the same word, exhorting the infant churches he had parented years earlier. 
Paul spent about a year in Macedonia and possibly used this time to preach the gospel as far west as Ilycrium and an area in what until recently was called Yugoslavia. In Romans 15:19 it says so from Jerusalem all the way to Ilycrium I have fully fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. I have fully nothing was missing. Also during his stay there, he wrote two of his epistles, two Corinthians, my favorite letter, as some of you may know already because uh, of him so um, uh, helpfully talking about his difficulties. Uh, so Second Corinthians and possibly his first letter the, uh, to the Galatian uh, churches, Though many uh, scholars state the writing of the Galatians after the first missionary journey, I understand that this was his first letter, the earliest letter written in the New Testament, and the place of origin as Antioch of Syria. He had already written two letters to the Corinthians believers from Ephesus, one letter that has been lost and another that is first. Corinthians. Then with his dream reaching, uh, reaching Rome, still burning in his heart, Paul heads for the next stop of his journey, Greece. And in Acts 20, verse 2, it says, he traveled through the area speaking many words many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece. And from Greece on to Troas, we can probably see um, the map. Paul has a fruitful three-month stay in Greece during which he writes his doctrinal masterpiece, the epistle to the Romans. From that letter, we read that he has been collecting donations from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia for needy believers in Jerusalem. You can read all about this in Romans 15, 25, and 26, where he's hoping to go before Passover. However, his plans for an Ocean crossing hit some murderous swells. Acts 2, uh, 3 says a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. So he determined to return through Macedonia. Apparently, the vengeful Jews wanted to assassinate him on board ship and dispose of his body at sea. But when Paul seemed this ill wind blowing, he wisely set a different course back up through Macedonia the way he had just come. 
Does this escape? You know, you wonder why he made that kind of decision. So uh, does this escape uh, maneuver mean that Paul did not trust God to protect him on the ship? Did he show a lack of courage by changing his travel route? Not at all. Paul would have been foolish to board that ship. God had informed him of the plot so he could escape the assassination attempt, not so his courage could be tested. Paul indeed trusted God, but he also knew to retreat from danger. He was a wise man, wasn't he? So we read in Acts 20, uh, uh, verse 4, he was accompanied by Sopater's son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, um, Timothy also, Antichicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia, lots of um, important names uh, in the life of Paul. This group of men made a sort of, um, I would like to call a, a traveling seminary, uh, which is great, you know, to have people alongside. I remember uh, of going to Albania at, at one stage. And we took a, a guy with us that had no experience whatsoever in mission work. The only thing he said after five years or so, you know what he did? He just carried my bag. But carrying my bag, which I, you know, I didn't ask him to carry my bag. I mean, after all, he's not my slave. But just doing this very bit encouraged him to be responsible more, to pick up more responsibility later on for the cause of mission. In fact, he is um, responsible now for the Christmas parcel scheme in the uh, BEG. And the first experience he had in missions was plainly carrying my bag. So I like that. These people that joined Paul. And Paul's um, class was always in session as they walked along discussing the scriptures with the apostle. And Paul's life was always on display exemplifying to be accessible to others. They could talk to him. Oops. Give it another try, yes. So Paul's life was always on on display. You know, they could touch him. They could look into his eyes. They could see his mouth talking. I like that, you know, just touching people. 
being together with people, seeing their joy, but also seeing their tears. Do you know how important that is? And that's exactly what, what um, these people, and, and, and there are many of them, uh, that were with Paul, they could see him. How he emphasized his life with Christ. How does it look like? It's not just a Sunday morning experience, it's a life experience. And Paul's life was always on display, exemplifying how to be accessible to others. This made his teachings so real. So real. Also, in his choice of traveling companions, Paul revealed that there is no rank of hierarchy. And I like that. Because after all, we are looking level into people's eyes. No hierarchy, you know, there's not, no one above, way above. But we are looking into the eyes of everybody else. And I like that. That's something I favor, being together with people. Uh, this is real teaching. No rank or hierarchy um, in the family of God. The man whose name was Secundus, which means the second, was obviously a slave. At this time, slaves did not bother to name their children. They just numbered them, the first, the second, the third, and so on. Romans 16.22 says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. We can only kind of um, speculate, maybe that number three, Tertius, who wrote the letter to the Romans as Paul's secretary was this man's brother. It's a speculation, and uh, don't shoot at me, you know. It's kind of a, um, a natural thought that came to him. Secundus, slave status made a little difference to Paul as supporters, noble heritage, and famous father. Even Timothy was half Jewish and half Gentile, yet Paul freely accepted him too. Some of the men were from Asia, um, some were from Europe. Paul treated them all level, as brothers in Christ. And I think that's important. He didn't come from above. But he was talking to them as a brother in Christ. That Jesus saved him just as the others. He lived out the truth he wrote to others, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. Nor, for you are all one in Christ. 
That was the gospel pure. Not looking down at slaves, but looking up to Christ, the Redeemer. That was the new, the gospel pure. Men and women were treated equally. That was the gospel because it was never done before. This is why the gospel was so attractive. People could see no difference any longer. With this group of men, Paul continued to move from city to city, eventually linking up with Luke in Philippi. This is indicated by Luke's use for the pronoun um, of the um, pronouns us and we in the account. So Acts 25 to 6 says there, these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us in Troas, and we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And we stayed seven days. Uh, apparently, Luke and Paul stayed in Philippi to celebrate Passover with the believers there and then met up with the other uh, men who had already crossed over to Troas. Now, looking at the events of Troas, this brief kind of very brief seven-day visit in Troas must have been somehow kind of nostalgic, you know, kind of nostalgic uh, memories that come up when you think of a, of a certain situation. Nostalgic, I like that. Uh, looking back in my life, there are lots of nostalgic uh, moments for it, has, uh, for it was here in Troas that God had given him the vision to eventually reach Vienna. Yes, come to Europe. Come over in Act 69, it says, come over to Macedonia and help us. And now he had the opportunity to minister in the city that had so significantly impacted his life. Let's look at, uh, I would like to call it as a portrait of a church. How did they, you know, practically uh, meet at church? And I think it gives us lots of very good insights in our practical church life. So have a look at it in Acts 20, verse 7. It tells us on the first day of the week when we gathered together to break bread. We will do it afterwards. Paul began talking to them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his message until Midnight. Let's do it also today. Huh? Should I prolong my message till midnight? Uh, yes? Well, I don't know. These are four facets of their worship. They are outstanding in 
these words. We notice that it was on Sunday. Interesting, huh? On Sunday, the first day of the week, the early church met to worship. So, you know, we get a glimpse how uh, Sunday worship came all about. The Jews observed the Sabbath on the seventh day. That was a Sunday, Saturday. But the Christians met on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, in honor, we assume, of the day of Jesus' resurrection as we read in Matthew 28, one after the Sabbath, Saturday, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. We were gathered together. Uh, they were sharing. Each of them had to share something from the word of God, we were gathered together. That fellowship, taking and receiving, that's fellowship all about. Koinonia, the Greek word, it means exactly that. It's not just receiving for the sake I've received and that's all. But koinonia also means giving. It doesn't need much grace to, to, to take but it needs grace to give. Um, they were gathered together implies a second point. The church service was primarily a time for believers. On Sundays, Christians who met to uh, spiritually tool up for the week ahead when they would be in the world witnessing for Christ. The church service was primarily a time for believers, you know, to get strengthened, encouraged, exhorted. That was a function of what happened in the church service. And then um, uh, on Sundays, they would tool up again, you know, encourage each other uh, for the days ahead during the week from Monday to next Saturday and so on. And then thirdly, the church service secondly was primarily a time for believers. And thirdly, and I'm so excited that we will practice this uh, this morning, the Lord's Supper was an integral um, uh, part of their worship. Luke simply writes, we were gathered together to break bread. That's what we do. The elements are here. That's what we do afterwards. This phrase gives us no details concerning how they celebrated communion, which really is such a, a very good thing. I like that. You know, that there are not made up laws how to celebrate it. It leaves us um, freely and openly. Um, it offers us, this is how we can celebrate. But it doesn't tell us this is the only way to celebrate it. You see? So it gives us freedom. Thus, we do not have to be 
for instance, in a very special church building. And to have a, to have a pastor, or for that matter, maybe a clergy in the official church is necessary to have to administer uh, communion. And the final glimpse at this church, um, Luke shows us the presence of biblical teaching. The presence of biblical teaching. Paul began talking of them. And he talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. In fact, he kept teaching until midnight. Showing us that an adequate feeding of the saints requires a significant period of time to properly unfold the truth. Admittedly, Paul got a little carried away. I mean, we need to be honest. Which had an unfortunate effect on a tired boy named Eutychus. And, well, here is the sleeping bit of this a morning sermon, um, a snapshot, as it were, of a sleeping saint. Acts 28 to 12 tells us there are many lambs in the upper room where we gather together, and there was a certain young man named Eutychus sitting on the window sill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. And when he had gone uh, pack up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until... Daybreak, you know, so they went on all night, you know, I get so excited about that. That's fellowship all about, you know, and I, I don't think all of them went to sleep. I mean, after this experience with Eutychus, I guess, you know, their temper just raised up and uh, they kind of were worried so they could no longer sleep, you know. They got so excited about it. And they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted, greatly comforted. Poor Eutychus, not only does he not, not off while listening to the great apostle Paul, but he tips over and falls right out of the third story window. Most embarrassing though is that Luke records this event so every generation across the entire world can read about it. I mean, if that would be the story about Hans falling down from the third floor and knocking off and sleep fast asleep, I, I wouldn't like it. Um, imagine yourself... That's the story about, I don't know, about James 
or Peter or David. That is the story. It's so embarrassing, so embarrassing. I would like to hear it. Now, why do people? Let's look into it. You know, and and I like this. You know, this is my opportunity. Why do really people and and I don't know. I don't. I can't see anybody sleeping this morning. So why do people fall asleep? Now, I, I uh, was reminded to my mom. Uh, going to well, there wasn't any children's service or so. And when I went to to church, so my mom, you know, just uh, took her hand, you know, while the pastor was preaching, and you know, I just nodded into my mom's uh, lap. And um, so, when youngsters, you know, I must admit, and I'm honest to you, I don't know you parents, you can be honest. Please be honest. So when youngsters' parents sometimes tell their kids unintentionally and with no purpose to associated sermons with sleep, allowing their kids to nap in their laps, allow it. You know this is how it is. You know sometimes the words of the pastor they are beyond the heads of the kids. You know so what else could they do? May I be embarrassing honest to you? I want to be honest, so it's uh, what I would call a kind of a, a tradition of parents. You know, let kids do what they need to do. And secondly, I think it's a, a physical factor. Sometimes the church can be stuffy, poorly ventilated, and dimly lit. Uh, too warm and dark to keep us from feeling drowsy. This probably played a part in Eutychus' case with the flickering lamps, casting hypnotizing shadows and raising temperature uh, of the room. You know, and it got so hot. So what else? I mean, your eyes just get heavy as as it, as they can be, and then you fall asleep. You know. Is that too embarrassing? Well, physical factors who can prevent them? Can you prevent them? And I am reminded to some of our um, time in Papua New Guinea, where the light was also dim, and I must admit, even being their missionary, I fall asleep. May I be honest? It was so hot, and uh, after two or three hours, you know, I got. So overtired that I fall asleep. Physical factors. Sometimes there are personal factors. Occasionally, we do not get enough sleep the night before, or perhaps we are taking some some uh, medication or have a health problem that causes up sleepness. Honest, you know, we need to be honest. Uh, but also, sometimes there may be, um, fourthly, some indifference. This is just a blind lack of interest in spiritual things, and I've seen that numerous times. You know, people that do not want to bow their knees before Christ. You know, they bow them. You know, getting well, sleep. 
not interested in spiritual things with costs, causes ranging from preoccupation to resentment. And then, of course, and uh, well, I need to bow before that, a boring preacher. What else can I say? Poorly organized, rambling material, uh, monotone delivery, too much time spent on needless details, being out of touch with people's need. You know, it causes us to sleep. Which of us hasn't struggled to stay awake while listening to preaching like this. I'm sorry. As people call to communicate Jesus Christ, whenever we are, we need to be especially sensitive about this last cause. We could do well to heat up the words of Solomon, the wise words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12, 9 to 11, it says, in addition of being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like Goats and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. When we teach, we should take great care to find the right words that will act as goats in the lives of the people who listen to us, stimulating and urging them into action, hopefully, and not sleep. Now, how do we apply all of this? It's a lot of information, but I think all of you can take something back, back home this week, thinking about it. On this leg of the third missionary journey, Paul has led us from Ephesus through Macedonia and Greece and back to Troas in Asia. Although he has much left to teach us about Christian maturity in his upcoming travels, for now, I think there are three main lessons that we would like to come up with and ponder on. It's the first one is to strengthen others' life, encouragement is essential exhortation you know how important it is to strengthen others life encouragement is essential oftentimes it's we come up with a negative and it kills spiritual life it's not that i keep quiet about the negative but first of all, let's do it like the Lord in Revelation, in all these letters that are written in, in the first chapters of Revelation. He come up, comes up with the first good thing, you know. And we need to remind us, ourselves, this is how the Lord, you know, teaches us 
encouragement. And encouragement is essential. The writer to the Hebrews capsulates Paul's example. He says in, in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stimulate one another to, to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. To strengthen one another. Encouragement is essential. Secondly, encouraging one another calls for availability. Paul taught his group of men by being close to them. He didn't shout at them, but he was very close to them as a human to humans, as a brother to brothers and sisters, and so on. As a result, God's truth rubbed off on their lives, changing the way they thought and acted, being close to people, looking at their eyes and they looking at your eyes, encouraging one another calls for availability. And thirdly, being available includes communication. Being available includes communication. Paul communicated scripture in his actions as well as his words. He was writer and speaker, two crafts available um, in his life. It's God. If God has given you skills of writing or speaking on the well, study the scriptures closely. Listen to God's voice intently. And learn how to prepare your words so that they will be like a banquet to your audience. Appealing and delicious, sure to satisfy. Exhortation. What a, a great word to take with you in this coming week. Exhortation. Exhortation to others. And I'd like to finish saying is like. Lightning small fires in people's lives. Sometimes the fires illuminate sin, drawing people towards repentance. And hopefully that has come through today as well, that we need to bow our knees before the Lord Jesus to confess our sins before him and ask the Lord Jesus to come into our lives. So that we follow him in eternity. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That is the most important one. And then by this it follows. Sometimes they awaken sleepers. Stirring them up into action. Sometimes they warm weary travelers. Comforting them with biblical truths. And sometimes they spark falling Failing hearts encourage them with hope. Paul's example of exhortation, that is what he did. He didn't fall short. He lights a fire under complacent and sinful believers, drawing them towards repentance. 
And we read about it in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul awakens some sleepers, stirring them to actions. In Galatians 1, 6 to 9, Paul comforts weary travelers with biblical truth. We, talk, we can read about it in Second uh, Thessalonians 1, 3 to 4. And Paul encourages the people with hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 uh, to 58. Well, my dear fellow brothers, in finishing, you too, you too, just as I hope I did this morning, you too have life words. Words that you can share with others. Your spouse, your friend, your child, just the people that are close to you and maybe sometimes even beyond. Fires illuminate sin, drawing towards repentance. That's exhortation as well. Awaken sleeping, stirring to action. Warm, weary travelers comforting them with biblical truth. And lastly, spark failing hearts, encouraging him with hope. May the Lord bless you all in doing so. Exhortation is something very special. And if we have experienced this by other fellow brothers and sisters, it warms our heart. We will never forget it. Amen. Amen. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are in the very center of this church. And as you are in the center of many other churches all around the globe, even uh, we extend our love and greetings to those that are listening. Thank you that uh, you are with us uh, even during this week, in the days to come, so that your word may encourage us to exhort others, to follow up your exhortation to us, in fellowship with others. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word is honey in our mouth and it warms our heart. We praise you and we worship you. Thank you for being with us in the days to come to do exactly this. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your encouragement this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.